If you have your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some available for you in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have any, if there, uh, there also, also are some available uh, towards the back. Uh, we have some that we can give to you. There's paperback Bibles right there on the table on their way out the door. Proverbs 3 today, Proverbs 1 through 9, really provides for us a series of, of lectures from a father to a son, from a king to a prince, from an authority figure to a young person about how they are to live life with wisdom, with godly wisdom. Proverbs 3. You know, the heart wants what it wants. Um, we have a one-and-a-half-year-old named Elise, and Elise has recently discovered ketchup. And um, she can say a few words. She can say, Mommy, Daddy. She can say all of her brothers and sisters' names, and then she can say ketchup. Um, anything that you can dip, by the way, is ketchup. Uh, ranch dressing, ketchup. Uh, any kind of sauce. And so we open the refrigerator, and she sits from her little chair, and she can see into the fridge, into the door, and as we open the fridge, she goes, ketchup. She sees it. She points at it. And we sometimes will get our, our wonderful chicken or whatever we've made and cut it up for her, and she will dip it in the ketchup and eat it. And then she finishes her chicken, and you know what she does next, right? She takes her spoon. That's right. She takes her spoon and she dips into that ketchup, and she eats it straight. Now, there's a problem in that, um, that her heart has just fallen in love with something that really isn't good for her. And, and you know, you all, if you were by yourself without anyone around, without anybody knowing, perhaps you might do something similar. You might see that ketchup, and you might say, I wonder what ketchup tastes like eating it straight. But most of you have grown out of that phase, hopefully, right? The heart often wants what it wants, and part of instruction, part of teaching is for the adults in the room to look at the child and say, I know you want that, but you should not want that, and you need to change what you want to something that is better. I know you want to eat ketchup straight for every meal, but that's not appropriate. Part of instruction, part of wisdom is teaching that very simple fact that what you want in your heart is not necessarily what you ought to pursue. What you like and what you desire is not necessarily the right place to go. In fact, the Hebrew word for heart is the Hebrew word lave and or lave, and it's it's much is used the same way it's used in English, and that it, it kind of defines this innermost part of a person, the, the, not the physical organ that pumps blood. When I speak about the heart, I'm talking about a person's control center, the source of your choices, of your loves and your thoughts. It's the place where decisions are made. Your heart is a centerpiece of your life, and whether you realize it or not, your heart is often where your life stems from. In fact, the, the heart that is not under God's control is a heart that will wander along its own path, a heart that will trust its own answers, a heart that will lean on its own perception, and that heart is not stable enough, it is not strong enough, and it was never intended by God to handle that weight. Because it was never meant to carry this load, a heart that is astray from God, that's leaning on its own, that you lean on, that you trust in, will lead you astray. And, and I think one of the clearest ways we've seen that in our culture today is the fact that we are a very anxious 
culture. We are a very anxious society, and this is no secret. I mean, you turn on the TV for five minutes, and you'll find at least one advertisement for an anti-anxiety uh, medication, some sort of help for people to talk out their needs. There's not only medication, there are services where you can call and talk to someone if you're struggling with anxiety. Our hearts are running away from us. Our hearts we cannot control our emotions. We cannot control our feelings. We cannot control our fears. We cannot control our desires. What are we to do? The Bible teaches us that we are to train our hearts with godly wisdom, that we are to go to God's word and we are to, be, have, we are to have a heart that leans fully on God's wisdom, not on our own understanding. We'll see that play out in Proverbs chapter 3. Before we go any further, let's dedicate this time to God in prayer. Father, we come to you today knowing that our hearts are heavy with grief and with difficulty and with, with struggles and with pains. And some people, their hearts are full of joy and excitement. Others, their hearts are full of heaviness. And Lord, despite where we find ourselves on the spectrum, we cannot start to lean on our hearts and trust our hearts. May we confront our inner self with the truth of your word, recognizing that you have a greater plan for us. Help us not to just rely on what we want and what we love, but inform those things by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Title of the message this morning, as you'll find the outline in your bulletin, is A Heart for Wisdom. Having a heart for wisdom. How do we train our hearts to be a heart for wisdom? How do we incline our hearts to wisdom. There are several different areas. We have four of them this morning. First, I want you to notice that we must train our hearts. You must train your heart to receive wisdom. You must train your heart to receive wisdom. We begin in verse 1 with this, this training, this instructing, this disciplining of your heart has a few, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> has a few purposes. If you're going to train your heart, you might not want to obey. You might not want to discipline your heart. You might not feel like obedience, but the discipline of obedience is crucial. We must do this first so that you may obey, receive wisdom so you may obey. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my law, <clears throat> but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and men. Once again, the audience for this lecture, the audience for this speech is a father speaking to his son. We are like listening into this. And he gives words of wisdom. He says, the law, the Torah given by the father needs to be followed. These are laws that need to be obeyed. Verse 3, he says, mercy and truth. Mercy is hesed. It's that word of covenant love. It's the, it's the promise of love showing covenant love to another person, committed love that God shows to us that we can show to other people. And let truth, let faithfulness, let consistency, let that all be kept in obedience to God's law. And this is important, that obedience is foundational to having a heart for wisdom. In fact, rules and standards that are applied and enforced boundaries are responsible for the father and son relationship, for the parent and child relationship. These, these boundaries, these rules ought to be done. In fact, obedience is the first step. It's not the last step in, in a heart of wisdom. 
You must choose to obey even when you don't feel like obeying, even when you don't fully understand why you're obeying. We must have a heart for obedience if we're going to have a heart to receive wisdom. I think there's a big mistake that a lot of Christians make and that we, we tie up rulemaking with legalism and we equate the two. We say, well, if you make any rules, if you say anything is right or wrong, if you say you have to do one thing or another thing, then you are, you are confining someone to legalism. And that, that's not at all what's happening. We are, we are called by God to be obedient in order to prepare our hearts for wisdom. If you are an obedient person, if you train yourself in being obedient to God, that is the first step because there are also words to obey, but there are commands to obey. Look at the commands, he says here in verse 1. My son, do not forget. It's an active like disregarding or discrediting it. It's like throwing advice on a pile of trash and saying, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to forget this. This is how many young people treat the advice of their parents. They're like, I don't have to deal, I don't have to deal with that. What do they know? And they take the advice, they take the commands their parents give them, and they throw them in the trash, and they, they disregard them. They count them as, as worthless. But he says, don't do that. Don't forget the commands of your parents. Don't forget the commands of those who have your best interest in mind. He says, let your heart keep them. This is the positive side of that negative earlier. Don't forget, here the positive you need to, you keep, you preserve. There's an active obedience here. We talked about a lot of that in the first several chapters of Proverbs. Look at verse 2. We'll see the, the blessings of an obedient heart. God blesses an obedient heart with life. He says there will be length of days and long life. It's saying the same thing. You will have a productive, blessed life here on earth, prosperous, long living instead of a miserable life. What good is living life if it's miserable? Therefore, God says he will give us peace, shalom, long life, and peace will be added to you. Words to obey, commands to obey, commands to remember. Look at verse 3. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and men. He says, place them before you. Bind them around you. A lot of ladies around here have necklaces. You might have a, 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 like a charm bracelet with representations for your grandkids. I've seen people put like a, a necklace that has a, a little charm for each or a little uh, ornament for each child or each grandchild. And, and those are meant to keep close to you to remind you of them. Now, it's not like you actually would forget. But that, that reminds you, that, that causes you to think on them in the same picture here. Bind them around your neck. Put them close to you where you can't miss them. You might have seen people do this in the past. I don't see people do this as much anymore, but they tie a little knot of, of twine or string around their finger. Why do they do that? To not forget something, to remind them. So it gets in the way. Oh, yeah, I've got to remember something. My, my wife's grandfather, when you were talking with him, his name was David. When you were talking with uh, Grandpa David and he wanted to remember, and he had something to say. This is really funny. When he had something to say and he didn't want to interrupt you because that would be rude, he would cross his fingers. And he'd sit there crossing his fingers and waiting for you to finish so he could say what he wanted to say. And, and normally he would, he would say it and it would be like something you talked about like a few minutes earlier. But that was his way of remembering. He would cross his fingers and remember People put twine around their finger. He say, put God's law like around your neck so you can't forget it. Now, obviously, we don't walk around with our Bibles strapped to our necks. It's impossible. But there are ways you can be reminded of God's word constantly. What are some ways you can be reminded of God's word constantly? Some of you get up in the morning. The first thing you do is you go to the bathroom, you brush your teeth, you look in the mirror. Why don't you put something in that mirror that reminds you of God's words? 
Some of you are driving down the road and you stop and you, and, you, and you stare off into the distance and you wait for the light to turn green. Why don't you do something to remind yourself of God's word? You can listen to the radio. You can put a little card in your, in your car somewhere. You can remind yourself of God's truth. You don't have to actually attach it to your body, but you can also write it, it says, on the tablet of your heart. We do not have abs- uh, actual tablets on our hearts, but the image is striking. We're to see our heart as a slate that needs to be permanently etched with the truth of God. It's that our heart is a, is a slate of stone that God wants us to etch in his word so that it stays there. And what happens? Our relationships and our reputation will benefit. He says we will find favor and high esteem. Favor here is the same word that's used very early on in the book of Genesis where it says Noah found favor, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. God saw him and God showed him favor, high esteem, success, progress, benefit. We receive wisdom verses 1 through 4, so we may obey. We receive wisdom so you may learn to trust. And this is so important that, that so much of our anxiety that I mentioned earlier comes from a lack of trust in God. We are very anxious people. I want you to notice, first of all, that we can trust God's direction. Look at verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. <clears throat> in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh, strength to your bones. Here in verse 5, finally we focus on this this control center of mankind, the heart. And there's a truth here that sometimes your own understanding will come into conflict with trusting God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding means sometimes your own understanding will not be in line with God's truth. Sometimes the way you perceive the world will not necessarily be what God says about the world. And at that point, you have a choice to make. Every one of us has a choice to make. Do I follow my own understanding? Do I lean on my own understanding or do I lean on God's word? And that decision is a huge decision to make. Because when you lean on something, you are relying on something, you are depending on something, and if that thing fails, you will fall. When you lean on your own understanding, the picture is of leaning on an object in order to support yourself. How many of us have found ourselves leaning on things that have broken? I have. It's embarrassing. One time I sat in a chair and it broke. I thought, thanks a lot. I need to go on a diet, I guess. I don't know what's wrong with me. But I sat in a chair and boom, it broke. That was embarrassing. Have you ever been leaning on something and it slipped out from under you and you fell on your face? That's embarrassing or standing on a little scaffolding, or standing on a stage, and it, and it fell beneath you. There, there's something bad about leaning on something, depending on something, and it not coming through. Some of you depended on someone else in your life. You, you depended on them to be there for you, and they were nowhere to be found. Just the other day, a, a relative of mine was stuck on the side of the road. They had a tire uh, problem, or they had a car problem. Sorry, not a tire, a car problem. They called uh, their, their favorite agency to help them with this, and they said, no problem, we'll be there. It took hours hours. Where were they? We leaned on them and they were not showing up. There is a, it's a horrible feeling to lean on something and it failed. Well, you want to be guaranteed to do that, have that experience is if you choose to lean on your own understanding. If you choose to lean on your understanding as opposed to God's understanding, you will fall. 
God tells us, do not do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Your heart sometimes will tell you one thing when God's word is saying the opposite. But if you acknowledge God, verse 6, if you acknowledge God in everything you do, God will direct your path. That word acknowledge is know, to know God, to know him, know all about him. God will direct. There's a warning in verse 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think highly of yourself. But think soberly. Don't think of yourself that you really got this thing figured out. Don't be smug. Recognize that God, God is telling us, do not be wise in your own expectations. Fear the Lord. This is how you do this and depart from evil. Fearing God, departing from evil. Often in our own eyes, we excuse evil, we rationalize evil, and we don't fear God. Verse 8 tells us the result of this, that we will actually have strength and health. You will be physically and spiritually benefit from this kind of living. Trust God's direction. Trust God's provision. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions. What's a way that we often uh, show a lack of trust in God? We refuse to honor God with our possessions. We hold back. We hold things in reserve. We don't give like we're supposed to. We're not kind to others with our needs. And with the first fruits of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will overflow with new wine. This is how you can trust the Lord with your provision for your daily needs. You honor God with what you have, your possessions, and with what you will receive, your first fruits. A lot of you need to take steps of faith in this area, and I'm so grateful. I don't, say, I don't talk about giving very much from this pulpit because our church is blessed mightily by people who understand this principle of giving. They understand that we are called by God to give faithfully and to give sacrificially and to give to the Lord, and that is part of how we worship him. That is why we have giving in the worship service. It is our response to God to give of what he has given to us possessions and the first fruits that shows that we trust him and some of us don't like to give some of us say well i'll give when i have more money if you're not giving when you have a little you will not give when you have a lot god says if you're faithful in little you can be faithful in much in fact he says here that as you honor the lord god blesses now this is a war i want to warn you this is not a prosperity gospel passage that preaches that if you give everything you have to God, God will make your business so large you won't know what to do with it. That is not the principle being taught here. The principle being taught here is that you will have exactly what you need. You will have more than what you need if you honor the Lord with your possessions. And I want you to notice that this is also sometimes things don't go exactly as you thought. And in verse 11, we see that you need to trust God's chastening when things don't go exactly like you expect them to. What happens in verse 10 doesn't happen like you think. Well, look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Our attitude towards chastening should be this. We might want to hate it and despise it and reject it. The word there means the same as if uh, when a man rejects a woman and rejects her, or God rejecting Saul from being king over Israel, this idea of, of trashing it, throwing it in the rubbish, throwing it in the trash bin. We ought to understand that what God is doing when he chastens us is that he wants us to draw closer to him. Don't despise the chastening of God. Why do we despise it? Because it's uncomfortable for us. It's not fun. Nobody enjoys chastening. You might say, well, you're using this word chastening. Can you explain what chastening is? Chastening 
is when God brings unpleasant circumstances into your life for the purpose of drawing you closer to him. Chastening is not the same as punishment. God chastens his children. God punishes his enemies. In fact, we know through Romans chapter 8 that if you're in Christ, there is never again any condemnation coming your way. God will not judge you nor punish you if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. God has saved you from punishment, but God will chasten you as a son. And God, God is not sitting there saying, I'll make you pay for what you did. He's saying, would you just come back to me? Would you repent and come back? And God brings uncomfortable, difficult, painful circumstances into our life that chasten us, that make us come to grips with our sin, and he corrects us because he loves us. Look at verse 12. God loves you. He corrects you. If God is not correcting you, he does not love you. So, of course, he will correct you. What kind of father is it who doesn't correct his son? In Hebrews chapter 12, we have this wonderful passage. I, I put it in your notes, and you could turn there if you want, but I have it up on the screen. I would at least write it in the margin of your Bible because this is a tremendous passage that references this exact thing. Hebrews chapter 12, he explains this more. The writer of Hebrews says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are, they, when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord love he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening... God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God will bring chastening in our life to help us receive wisdom. Will you train your heart? Will you exercise your heart to be trusting and obeying God? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. What does that look like? It looks like not listening to your feelings, but training your heart, not just doing what you want, but obeying and trusting him. Secondly, we'll see we must train your heart to desire wisdom. These next points will go rather quickly. Why should we train your hearts to desire wisdom? Well, first, because it's useful for man. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is useful. Wisdom is helpful. He describes this starting in verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and the things you may desire, uh, the things you may desire, cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand; her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Happy are those who retain her. How is wisdom useful? It is worth the trouble. It is worth the difficulty because it's valuable. Why do people dig into the earth to get little rocks? Because they're worth it. People will buy that stuff, you know. They actually polish it and put it in rings, and people buy it. I still was confused as a child. We understood that people buy expensive rocks, so we gathered a bunch of rocks, and we sat on our front porch, and we tried to sell rocks to the neighbors as they drove by. And you know how many sales we had? Zero. No one wanted to buy our rocks. We thought they were pretty cool, but they weren't worth it. They were valueless. 
But the rubies and the diamonds and the gold that we see is valuable. It is precious. So, so, so is wisdom. Wisdom is valuable. It's worth the trouble. He says, happy is the man. It is extremely valuable to be desired. And it's a simple way of thinking about this. Think about how many people, think about how many people win the lottery and then have no wisdom in spending the money. And think about what happens. How, how do they end up? They end up penniless. Actually, having wisdom really does be sometimes more profitable than even having riches because if you have the riches, you may waste the riches. But having wisdom, you know how to spend things and you could actually be beneficial to you. This is very practical stuff. Verse 16, it is beneficial because the one who pursues wisdom and gains wisdom has a long life and riches and honor. There is pleasantness. There is peace. There is a, verse 18, a tree of life. The picture of the tree of life as established in the Garden of Eden is the life-giving tree that if you ate of it, you live forever. And in the Garden of Eden, it goes also to heaven. And in heaven, we have the tree of life preserved in heaven. And God says there is a tree of life there, a life-giving tree. And wisdom is like that for us. We can go to God's word. We can live as God calls us to live. And we could be living like a tree of life. It is useful for men. And what a greater endorsement then it is also useful for God. This is so startling that wisdom is not just something that we can use and that's a nice tool for us to have. God uses wisdom and used wisdom when he founded the earth. Look at verse 19. He said, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths are broken up and clouds drop down the dew. God, when he established and formed the earth, he founded it with wisdom. And I believe this is partially the, to the explanation for why, why the, the world around us is understandable by human beings. God intended for us to be able to discern and understand the world and see the world, and we can do science in the world today. We can do experiments and see things because God did not make the world chaotic. God did not make the world just random. God did not make the world uh, confusing or bizarre or magical. He made the world with wisdom. So we, through wisdom, can also understand a functioning world. Christians have always believed this about the world around them, and that was partially why we have so many scientific ex uh, explosions in Christian countries because of this principle. The, in fact, he talks in verse 20 about the cycles of the earth, rain falling, clouds dropping dew. They're all in harmony with God's wisdom. You need to train your heart to desire the wisdom because wisdom is useful for men and for God, and you should train your heart, thirdly, to use wisdom. Train your heart to use wisdom, and there are two evidences here that you are properly using wisdom as God intends. Would you look in chapter 3? He says, or I'm sorry, in verse 21 through 26, he says first here that wisdom brings confidence. Wisdom will be life. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life to your soul, grace to your neck. And notice verse 23, safety. Then you will walk safely in your way. Your foot will not stumble. One of the greatest fears people have today is safety. Safety first, they say. Be safe. In fact, that has become kind of a thing people say when you leave, like somewhere, hey, be safe out there. There's, safety is a concern. 
I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. We had a friend of ours, uh, a mother uh, who's actually a cousin uh, to Jenna. So, and she, she has these kids, and she says, well, as I always say, safety third. <laughs> it made me, made me laugh. And, and she's like, you know, fun first and then safety third. And, and she's a fun mom, I guess. I don't know. But, um, but safety is a concern for a lot of people. And, and what here he's saying is, is that when you live with wisdom, when your heart uses wisdom, you actually can have confidence to go to sleep well. It says it explicitly. Look at verse 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. You can have confidence and you can be without fear. This is the daily reminder. I always say sleep is a daily reminder that you are not God. The world continues without you. You need to stop. You need to rest. You need to sleep. And the anxious hearts around us cannot go to sleep because we feel like if we are vulnerable, then something will happen to us. Sleep is ultimate vulnerability. And God says, when you have confidence, when you're using wisdom, you can go to sleep, you can be confident, you can be restful. Because you know that I have things under control. Don't be afraid, he says, because Yahweh, God, will be your confidence. Verses 25 and 26, do not be afraid of sudden terror nor the trouble of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh, the Lord, will be your confidence. He will keep your foot from being caught. Wisdom will deliver you from living a life of anxiety and fear. Wisdom will give you confidence in the face of uncertainties. Wisdom to overcome the fear of life. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. First John 4.18, he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We are not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You need to let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In fact, the greatest confidence you can have is the confidence that your sins are forgiven, that you have a home in heaven, and that you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the salvation we have in Christ, we are given from, from the Bible. The promise of Scripture, Romans chapter 4, tells us this. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. You can have righteousness by faith. Now to him who works, the wages are counted not as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You can have confidence because of your righteousness in Christ. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. You should have confidence if you train your heart to use wisdom. You should also have integrity. Look at verse 27. You have integrity that flows out of a life of confidence and wisdom in God. What does this look like? Integrity looks like paying your debts in a timely manner. Many people have a bad habit of taking out a debt and then not wanting to repay their debt. There are some people today who have still not paid their student debts because they've been on hold for a couple of years due to COVID. Now, I'm not going to take, uh, stamp on too many toes, but that's a terrible, terrible testimony if you're a Christian. If you're not paying debts that you took out, you knew what you did when you took it out, but you're not paying things back and you have the means of paying it back. If you, if you have taken out debts and you have the ability to pay it back and you're not paying it back, you are in disobedience to what God is calling here and you ought to be ashamed of yourself as a Christian. Christians do what they're called to do. You pay the debts you take out. Look at verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in the power in your hand to do so, do not say to your neighbor, go, go come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. If you have integrity in your heart, if you're living a life of wisdom, you will do the hard thing and pay the debts you owe. As Christians, we should stand up and do what we are called to do. These are debts you may have taken out. These are responsibilities you may have of even being someone's neighbor. 
You are responsible for other people here. Do not delay the payment of your debt. Also, there's a generosity here involved that we ought to have confidence in God. We ought to be generous with what we have, and that involves having confidence that God can pay back what we need. God is there to provide for us, and when you give, it shows that, that you trust God and your heart is confident in him. We also should treat our neighbors fairly. Verse 29, we see that this is integrity playing out among how we treat our neighbors. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, for if he has done you no harm. Don't be mean to those who are nearby. Don't ruin your trust. Don't pick fights, cause trouble, or be agitated, or blow up with others. This is wisdom in action. This is your heart using wisdom. And when you use the wisdom of God in your life, you'll see two evidences. You'll see courage and integrity in how you treat others. Lastly, we will see you must train your heart to trust God's plan. God deals with justly with everyone, with those who receive wisdom and those who reject wisdom. In verse 33 through 35, as we wrap up this chapter, God says the following. He says, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of of fools. There's a contrast between a scorner, a cynic, a mocker, and the one who follows the wisdom of God. Which would you rather be on? Notice, here's how God blesses the wise. He will bless the home of the, of the just. He will bless them and give grace to the humble. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7 quotes this. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, and all be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care upon him, for he cares for you. God blesses the wise, but God opposes scorners. And this is something that ought to scare you to death. That if you are a wicked scorner, if you mock God, if you shake your fist in God's face, if you mock him, God will mock you back. When it says God opposes or God scorns the scornful, it's saying here that God will mock those who mock him. You don't want to be in those shoes. Those who mock God will one day find that God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. And he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. They will have a legacy of shame. And But when we are with God, we shall not be ashamed. They shall be ashamed and disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. This is Isaiah 45. Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. That it, and he says here that God being the one who is no other, we need to develop a heart of wisdom because God opposes those who are scorners and he blesses those who believe him and who trust him. And as we develop a heart for wisdom, what does it look for us like for us to have a heart of wisdom? I ask you, as I turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, tells us that we in our heart must believe in Jesus Christ. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Christian, God has called for you to have a changed heart. And those of you who are not yet Christians, this is what you must do first if you're going to have a heart for wisdom. You must have a heart that trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. But if you're a believer, you need to have a heart that seeks the things that are above. I read at the beginning of the, of the service today, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which says this. If you are raised with Christ, that means if you're a believer, what are you supposed to seek? Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Too many of us are consumed with the earth and God says, set our minds on heavenly things. Pursue knowledge with everything you have. Would you watch your heart? Watch what you allow your heart to love because we are in an anxious culture and our hearts are restless and you need to lay all your anxieties at the feet of Jesus. Whether for the first time as an unbeliever coming to Christ and asking him to forgive you of your sins and believing in him for salvation or as a believer coming time and time again in repentance asking God, to take your anxieties and take your cares and casting them all at his feet. I don't know which side you're on today, but I encourage you to find wisdom, to pursue wisdom, to train your heart. Many Christians need to train our hearts for wisdom. We need to get something right. Maybe today you need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I have not been responsive to you with my possessions. I have been hoarding my possessions and not blessing others like I was supposed to. I know I'm falling down on the job. Some of us have allowed our hearts to chase things that do not need to be chased. We have pursued things outside of your will and say, Lord, please forgive me for that. Would you bow your head with me as we cast our anxieties and cares upon God? If our culture is so anxious, there's no doubt that many in this congregation are anxious too. Lord, I pray for our folks here that many who struggle with anxiety and being anxious about their life, who do not have the security that your wisdom provides, who are struggling for whatever reason today, Lord, may they pursue wisdom and by it find security that they can sleep well at night and find confidence to know that you care for them. But Lord, I pray also for those who do not yet know you, if this is their first time being confronted with their truth, Father, I pray that you would open up their hearts to salvation, that today would be the day they trust you alone, the gift of Christ on the cross, the payment for our sins alone for salvation, not our own works, but because of what you've done, we can trust you. Every head bowed and every eye closed, deal with God now. All your anxieties, all your cares, bring to the mercy seat, leave them there. There's never a burden that he cannot care. Never a friend like Jesus. Would you carry those burdens to Christ today? Carry those burdens and give them to him. Trust him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Father, I do continue to pray. You'd work in our hearts this morning as there's so much for us to change, so much that you could show us and so many things for us to repent of. But, Father, I pray that even this week we would focus on what you were pointing out in our life and we would be obedient to the thing that you call us to change, the thing you call us to repent of. May we be mature believers. May we be healthy believers. In Jesus' name, amen.